Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're discussing the death of indie rock. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's debate. Is indie rock dead? Secret war has raged for half a decade among pasty, emaciated, bespectacled dweebs. It is a war waged over the question, is indie rock dead? Today we attempt to answer that question and bring peace to all the dive bars, college radio studios, and art communes across the world. So I think, you know, to start this conversation uh, about the death of indie rock, um, it would be useful to start with a couple of definitions here. Um, you know, I think originally independent music referred to independent labels, which were just any non-major uh, corporate label, so something that was independently owned and operated rather than shareholder-driven, which I guess theoretically means that art can take priority over profit. So if you've ever wondered where the stigma about selling out to the uh, corporate horrors comes from, I think this is uh, the source of a lot of that tension. Um, but in the mid-1980s, uh, indie began to be used um, to describe the music uh, produced on post-punk labels rather than just the labels themselves. And the indie rock scene in the U.S. was prefigured by sort of college rock that dominated college radio playlists, which included bands like The Replacements, Pixies, and R.E.M. Uh, from the, and, and then on the U.K. side, you know, bands like The Smiths. Another way to think about it is uh, all of Wyndham's favorite bands from his teenage years and basically all of Jeremy's favorite bands from, uh, from his adolescence. So, um, you know, w- once the term... <clears throat> Once the term uh, uh, came to be used, you know, in, in a slightly different way, you know, to talk about the the music rather than just the labels, um, you know, I think it, it's music uh, produced independent of, of major commercial record labels or their subsidiaries. So this process is sort of frequently means like musicians taking an autonomous DIY uh, or do-it-yourself approach. So recording, publishing, press, and publicity, booking, doing your own tour promotion, stuff like that. Um, you know, there are a few ways that this definition can be a little murky, but but in the modern, um, you know, but in the general sense, uh, I think that's a good starting point. So, so guys, with, with all that in mind, I'll shut up now. Um, you know, what do people mean when they talk about the death of indie? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting take. I mean, it's funny. I feel like all my life listening to music, there's been the death of something, whether it was the death of rock, you know, via electronic music or, you know, the death of, of indie rock and, and hip-hop's emergence or death of punk rock. I mean, it's just, I feel like it's a lot of, um, you know... It's sort a lot of, of death. Yeah, a lot of a lot of dying of genres that aren't really dead. I it's, mean, I think today... It's really today, just a holocaust of genres. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and don't forget that uh, Lenny Kravitz in the, in the middle-late 90s declared that rock and roll is dead, which was pretty much a definitive statement, I mean, from a definitive... Oh. <laughs> from, from a definitive authority of, of yeah. the, the Grim yeah. Reaper of rock himself. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny, too, as you look at today. I mean, I think, Christian, you, you name-checked a couple of things. I mean, I remember sort of like um, what you would call or what we call, I guess, indie rock today being 
college rock of, of Wyndham's youth and of my youth morphing into sort of alternative and then the, the corporate uh, behemoth labels taking over that name. Um, as we sit here in 2017, I feel like I've never felt like indie music or indie rock accessibility has, has been better. I mean, it's something that I know Wynn and I have spent a lot of time on this pod talking about really having to, to kind of find and identifying as a label. If somebody was on a, a 4AD or Discord or Touch and Go, you, you kind of knew you were at least in a safe zone and you, you had to kind of discover those bands and, and figure out, you know, how to get their music and, and assume that you sort of were going to like that portfolio of that label today i feel like you know with the emergence of the internet and the emergency emergence of, of indie labels being pretty successful in the sense that they don't necessarily always need major label backing and that bands don't need to distribute or put out albums the way they used to um you know i think it's, it's a brave new world and, and so it's kind of funny to me that you know people declare indie rock dead i'm not saying that indie rock is any bigger than it maybe was when it was called college rock but i'm definitely saying that you know it's out there in droves. I think there's more access, more bands, more labels, um, and just easier easier time if, if you're a band today to get your music out to the masses. Yeah, but I guess it, you know it's it's not whether it's indie rock dead because I mean if you could you could have multiple tombstones for that grave, um, you know the, the the period where um, you know the regional scenes and things. I mean I, I'll go through this in a little bit, but uh, um, you know basically. Uh, it, so, you know, is it dead? Is it, has it just gone mainstream? Have the firewalls come down on, you know, that have, that were, you know, so decided between subgenres and, and the things that you, like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just access, I think. I think you just, you know, the fact that you can, you have, uh, and it's democratization. Um, you know, something is good and people like it. It does well. Uh, the kind of thing that I think we always wanted to have happen uh, when we were younger, and we were wondering why you know the Smiths didn't have hits. You know, one one thing that I I do think is kind of interesting though is you know that so I mean I agree that in a strict sense like indie labels and indie bands are thriving, right? Um, they make plenty of music, but I, I think um, one way that the internet sort of evolved, you know, to get music into the hands of, of a wider audience at the same time um you know major labels are responding to that by providing a slightly different set of services than they used to provide so you know they don't necessarily need to um uh control the entire process soup to nuts you know and sort of um basically provide the record advance and and um you know participate in career management um payola and do, yeah and, <laughs> and physical album distribution and record stores and stuff like that i mean because there are just aren't i mean there aren't record stores and there isn't physical distribution so they, they're offering up services a la carte and now you get like bands that are signed to indie labels but those indie labels will then contract with like a capital to do promotion on commercial radio and stuff like that. I mean that that's one way where I can see like the the lines kind of blurring, um, and it's a little bit more difficult to to tell what really constitutes indie versus what constitutes a, a, a sort of more mainstream or or major. Um, Situation. At the same time, there are pure indies that now get play on stuff like XMU and satellite radio, which is pretty mainstream. So, I mean, you, you have, like, uh, you, you don't even need necessarily the, the muscle of, of major labels to do that. Um, so it really is, uh, it, it really is a sort of a, a, a continuously, you know, moving target to try and pin this down. Um, but, uh, but I think we will, you know, maybe we could take a quick break and then we can 
come back and talk about sort of when and how yeah, this this change happened. And talk, about, talk about the evolution and, and also, um, you know, the sort of uh, the, 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 the re-scripting of, of how these things work. my chagrin that was some rem bullshit um but of all the bands out there i think rem is actually one of the most important to this discussion about sort of indie rock first it's evolution and later it's uh, it's arguable demise well it wasn't so much you know uh, a choice you know indie as a as a sort of self-descriptor it wasn't so much a choice as it was you know the reality of, of how the world worked before uh, all this interconnectedness. You, I mean, you mean they were yelling indie freak when they were shoving you in your locker? Totally. You were, you yeah. were put into the category as opposed to opting for it. Actually, no, I mean, they, weren't, they weren't so, uh, you know, um, hip to, the, to sort of uh, <laughs> taxonomy back then. It was just freak. And then yeah. I got shoved in the locker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there was there was no uh, there was no compliments involved. Um, and the Charlie horses <laughs> hurt either way, so yeah, exactly. Um, but the, you know, bands built regional followings, and then they you know they by playing their home base and touring certain pockets of the country, it was a limitation of the ability to get your music out as much as anything. And but what you did do was you built these sort of small armies uh, or these legions of fans that were so loyal. Um, you know, it's why, you know, I understand you don't, uh, like REM musically, but, um, they were really, um, you know, one of the blueprints for this kind of, uh, uh, evolution of, of bands. Basically they start playing parties at their college and then, um, you know, they, they put out a, you know, they sort of self produce a, a seven inch and they get signed to a regional label and. You know, I mean, you're talking the SST slashes, Twin Tones. Um, IRS. You know, yeah, IRS, uh, later Matador, and, uh, you know, much later Merge. Um, you know, all these, you know, Discord, your own hometown label. Um, so, you know, basically what they were doing was they were conquering small parts of the country, and then 
it, because, you know, like an REM being from Athens, Georgia, or Husker Du being from Minneapolis, um, you know, the, the, the brain trust, and I use that uh, term relatively loosely, in the Los Angeles or New York finds out that this is the hot thing and chases it. Um, so, so that's a that's a really interesting point. If I I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I mean I, I think like the the one of the key distinctions in my mind anyway is that like with the majors at this point, you know they either they either picked the like teeny bopper pop star who they knew could be you know a, a megastar who had the right yeah. look. Yeah, exactly that kind of shit. But the other way that they would do it, I, I mean they weren't necessarily they didn't look at guys in REM and say. Man, they're the next Mike hot Mills thing. is a rock star. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> On the other so hand, they did say that about Tommy Stinson. Yeah. yeah, but but in those so in those situations, you know, they're basically they're not trying to be adventurous and innovative. They're basically trying to sell what sells. And, exactly. And part of that is because they have a fiduciary obligation to do so again to their shareholders. So like, you know, they if you can demonstrate that you already have a fan base. Then, then they'll take you right. on and they'll say, and they can just yeah. use that to well, ramp you up yeah, to a massive audience. And I would and also say that, sorry, when these guys, a lot of these people that worked in the record industry back then and... and we're dorks. Yeah, we're music fans. I mean, you read Trouble Boys or the people that champion all the bands that we like back then that never quite cracked the, the code, REM being an exception, obviously, but like... These were guys that really liked music, and these were good bands, and they were probably the best. I mean, as many REMs and Husker Du's and, and replacements as there were, there were probably just as many as there are today crappier bands that, that um, you know, weren't building as big a following or weren't, you know, maybe couldn't lay it down on album like they could live yeah. or vice Pylon, versa. Pylon, Big yeah, Chief. Yeah, exactly. And so, or were just Paw. too weird, you know? Um, the Buck Pets. And, and so I think, too, like, you have to remember that, you know, if you were into music, you weren't a musician, you, you know, wanted to work in the industry, um, you went and you were an A&R guy or you were, you know, seeking, you know, new music. So I think sometimes these guys really champion these bands and they just didn't quite click with the mainstream public or the bands were too fiercely independent. Um, but R.E.M. being an example of a band that, that really built that following and critical acclaim and then, you know, broke through the, the masses. Well, the, the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, you take an A&R guy from New York or Los Angeles, you fly him to, you know, not even Athens necessarily, but to, uh, you know, a, a gig at Chapel Hill for REM at the time or a gig in Charlottesville, Virginia, or, uh, you know, one of those sort of regional outposts where they are so hungry for the, for their their band and, their, and you know, what is essentially becomes the home team that, you know, they get a, I think the A&R guys would get disproportionate feeling of, of how popular they could be because, you know, you, if you pack a, a 500, you know, capacity club and everybody in there loves it and knows every word, the idea must be that, oh, these guys could reach an extraordinarily wide audience and the music's great. Um, that, that said, I will say, um, you know, the one misconception I think now that people have looking back historically is that these bands wanted to have like a smaller cult following. I mean, they were, they did have their artistic integrity and, and a lot of them kept it. But, you know, I remember reading Tina Fey's Bossy Pants or, or Bob Mould's autobiography and both of them said the same thing. I mean, Tina Fey said, I was trying to make home improvement when I made 30 Rock. And Bob <laughs> Mould's like, I wanted to play stadiums. I did, this wasn't, this wasn't uh, uh, something people set out to do to start a I think following. we can relate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, someone's going to love this show eventually. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, but I do understand that. You know, you think you're making uh, 
something, you think you're making the best version of what you can possibly make, and you are. And there's certain people that love it, but it didn't necessarily translate. You know, I mean, you think about the bands that were on major labels pretty early on. I mean, X was on a major label. The television was on a major label. Patti Smith Group, um, you know, uh, Husker Du, R.E.M., yeah, um, you know they all eventually went on major labels, and only later. Dinosaur Junior, yes, I mean they yeah. all. Only a little bit later did I mean Talking Heads, Madonna. Uh, only a little bit later did people start sort of uh, reverse engineering this idea that uh, I mean there was a, a feeling in that current space that if you were selling out, um, going to a major label, you were selling out. But it was a lot of that was predicated on jealousy, and and later it became this sort of. Um, ethos, very code. rigid ethos yeah. that that people well, had to follow. I also wonder the extent to which it was uh, a rigid ethos that was perpetuated by the bands that went over to the major label side and then ended up coming back very quickly because it didn't work out. And I'm looking at you, Sonic Youth, yeah, for exactly. uh, for yeah. you know Daydream Nation getting distributed by what was a Capital, and then they signed a Geffen for Goo, yeah. like uh, you know, and and then yeah, that was that, and um, and right back to right back to the well, and uh, that goes into your point of the cross pollination that's happening today, and and I think it, like you said, it's more a la carte today. But back then, that same cross-pollination with, with uh, you know, major labels was happening through distribution deals and through, um, you know, the major labels straight up buying sort of indie labels and having them be their kind of for like, one, you know... For one band. Yeah, yeah alternative arm and, and that type of thing. And, and, and I, I think there was a lot of that where, you know, to Wynn's point, like, you hear Teenage Riot by Sonic Youth and this is, this is it. This is the new sound. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is, we found it. And then you send it out there and nobody listens to it except for the same college radio stations. And, and so I think there was a lot of, you know, we, we can talk about the land grab and then in the late nineties or nineties, um, post Nirvana and things like that too. But like, you know, I think there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of failure. And then, you know, I, I think, too, there was just a, there's an old guard in that. And obviously why these bands sort of go back to the Indies is because, you know, Merge Records, I think, being a great example. And we can talk Spoon real quick. I mean, a band that was signed in the land grab, you know, um, album got shelved. Nobody got behind it. You know, there, there were just more important things going on at those labels. And then they re-sign with the indie label Merge and are able to do what they want and, you know, for all intents and purposes, have one of the most successful indie rock careers well, of the last And that's you know, exactly right. You, you have to fight for the attention of executives within uh, a major label if you're signed to one, whereas if you're with an indie these days, like, you can get the same distribution because of the Internet. And, and I think, you know, from the artist's perspective, it's like, why, I mean, why would you want to have to fight for executive attention when those aren't the people whose opinions you necessarily give a shit about to begin with? Um, you know, your fans are out there. Uh, put the music in their hands and let, let word of mouth happen. Let the press happen. Um, and, you know, and, and I think the proliferation of, of indie-focused media specifically, um, you know, it's, it's always been out there in the form of magazines, but, like, I mean, the explosion of pitchfork media under the scene in was it the late 90s um was uh was you know really i think sort of ushered in a new era um of you know the way that that journalism uh, sort of comprehensively um it's they you know they started reviewing albums on a regular basis that might not have had the same attention and it was distributed to a wider audience so yeah and i think it was like a perfect storm i mean i i do kind of think like my age group being born in 76 and in my early 40s 
was kind of the last sort of segregated group where, you know, I had definite friends who listened to like underground hip hop and mainstream hip hop. And, we, you know, I obviously listened to a lot of indie rock and punk rock and things like that. But I think Wynn mentioned before sort of the firewall is coming down with the Internet, which would have been your generation, Christian. Um, you know, there's just so much more uh, merging of, of sounds and music that I think that these labels, too, like, you know, where before, like, a label specified a sound. Like, if you were on Raucous Records, you were very much, like, underground New York hip-hop. And if you were on 4AD, you were kind of sort of dreamy, odd, you know, sort of pop and, and uh, you know, a rough trade or, you know, any of these sort of labels. And I think with that kind of explosion, you saw these labels start to take on much different acts as well, whether it was, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, more dance oriented or, or just straight rock or, or, you know, whatever country folk, you know, and I think that's been a huge shift. And the other thing I was going to say too, is, is getting music out on commercials. I mean, how many, I think that's, you know, probably the biggest moneymaker for indie bands today or for bands in general is, you know, where it used to be album sales and I, I, we, you know, you can say Taylor Swift and Beyonce are the only people that still sell albums. And then, you know, if if you're not on the Starbucks shelf or, you know, at Target or Walmart, you're not really selling albums anymore. So, you know, where a lot of these songs come from are, are you know, a, a commercial, and these guys are getting Video paid Video games, that way. commercials, yeah. Yeah. Licensing. It's sync and it's touring. I think, yep. I, th- I think the two, you know, the sort of landmarks that I see here are the one that sort of blew up the old system into, you know, sort of uh, the stratosphere was obviously Nirvana, Nevermind coming out, because that was the same thing. It was like there's a there's – a, they signed to a – a major label they uh, you know had with much trip I don't know if they signed with much trepidation but they certainly um, you know a lot of their public uh, interviews and things were were backpedaling on on uh, the fact that they had you know sort of become popular and sold out and it was this uh, source of, of much consternation and, and embarrassment and um, you know, that sort of broke down a wall. It also, you know, sent that, like, A&R guys rushing into a geographical area thing into overdrive. I mean, nobody yeah. could pick up a yeah. guitar in Seattle without getting signed. Well, um, the other thing, too, and when I think you would agree with this, is there was there was a molding back then. You know, like, major labels still had, I mean, they and they probably, they still do, but, like, there was formula, right? I mean, Dinosaur Jr. And, and Buffalo Tom and all these bands that get signed, you know, in the Nirvana range and, and all the Seattle bands, you know, everybody, you know, there was sort of like their sound changed. You know, I, I remember mm-hmm. vividly like listening to the new major label debut by some of these bands and being excited and, and thinking like, oh, wow, like they've really dumbed this down quite a bit, you know, and I don't think that happens as much today. I think you're, you have yeah. a little more freedom, well, you know. Well, I think, I think the other major bombshell, and I will take a break right after this, but um, it's Justin Timberlake. I would say Justin Timberlake is the other sort of wild card that sort of... Radiohead? Uh, Radiohead definitely had their own path, and, and, and I think... That is, but what I'm saying is that, like, the idea that, like, you... You could never be have cool cred um, and have been a like a sellout pop performer. I mean, right. all kind of went there away. It was un- unquestionable that anybody would be a boy band that you could bounce that you would back ever like a boy band. Yeah. yeah, I will say on Radiohead though, real quick before we take a break, I think they're an interesting you know group, and, and we probably should do a pod on them at some point because. You know, OK Computer being, you know, number one hit record and being very much its own thing and its own sound, they sort of did fall into that 
thing that Wyndham was talking before, like with the pavements and the subados and that sort of indie cred thing where Radiohead, A, had the freedom to go and do whatever the fuck they wanted because they had both critical acclaim and record sales, but also, um, you know, they chose to, like, leave singles off of albums because they thought they would be too big, and, and you know, they, they took a definite stance in that way, like, we want to be big enough to do what we want, but we don't want to be huge, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, the fact that they gave away one of the records was, a, a, you know, such a shock to the system, I think, um, mm-hmm. but also proved to be um, uh, proved to be pretty prescient in terms of, you know, the, the way they saw the, the landscape evolving. I mean, it was only a few years later that now people are surprised dropping albums onto streaming services. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, um, they just, they saw the writing on the wall first. Yeah. Um, so... Um, but I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I just to wrap up the idea here. I mean, I'm, I am hearing that that you know there are other previous examples of sort of mainstream lights suddenly being cast upon like the the mole people um, of the underground rock world or underground scene in general, um, and you know sort of exposing them to a bigger audience. So in that sense, it's it's not the first time that that's happened. It's not the first time that indie rock has been thrust into the mainstream. Mm. Well, on that note, I'd say Jack White and Wynn Butler are both still very pale. Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, um, all right, well, so let's uh, let's take a break. I think, Wyndham, you've got a cool idea about, about the role that music journalism might play in this, right? Um, cool and music journalism? Did you just use those in the same sentence? <laughs> Fair enough. All right, we'll be back. When you were before Couldn't look you in the eye Just like an angel Your skin makes me cry You float like a feather In a beautiful world I wish I was special Yourself
Welcome back. Uh, here's here's another idea that may uh, resonate a little bit, and that is that, um, you know, with the decline in, in centralized music journalism, maybe these uh, indie rock is dead people are just trying to achieve clickbait and get attention for themselves. Any thoughts? I think the phrase trying to achieve clickbait um, re- uh, reveals your your uh, your age there, Wyndham. Um, but <laughs> I didn't even um, go not, there. Not a, not a word that you normally uh, use in a sentence. No. Um, yeah, fair enough. Um, no, I, I, that makes a lot of sense, though. I mean, look, these guys do need to ultimately get views, get clicks, and and you know, indie rock is dead. Indie rock is alive. You know, grand sweeping gestures and statements uh, in in headlines of articles are. I mean, look, this is this is just a fact. I mean, it was always one thing that that Tom York was so adorable, you wouldn't believe what he looks like now. You know, exactly. <laughs> I no, still don't understand the, that's the whether the perfect example. I still don't understand whether that. I mean, because I won't. I won't go there. Is, is it supposed to but be? Tom York did not used to be adorable. I know, but <laughs> no, I was going to say, say yeah. Then but it, it's I missed like, that part of his career. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was before he was on a major, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, but have you ever seen those? It's like you know. Oh yeah, she, and what she looks like now, and I've, I've never, I've never wanted to take that bait. So yeah, no, supposed to, are you trying probably... to tell us that she's hideous or beautiful? I can't tell. Well, it is. I mean, Bu- Buzzfeed was a big part of this model, and it's like, I mean, it, it's the if you can't capture them with the headline, you're sure as shit not going to capture them with the ensuing 800 words of extremely well crafted and well thought out and well argued journalism. You know, it's like we don't give a shit whether you read this or not. We want you to click on this link because that is how we sell digital advertising yep. space. Well, and I would say too, how much do you guys depend on rock journalism today? Like, I know I don't. You know, I mean, if there's a list of like, you know, the last best 10 albums that came out first half of the year or something i'll check it out because i just want to see if i'm still relevant or if i still as, as, are, as we are moving things. into list season yeah yeah I mean, you know it, but i mean besides that i mean even record reviews to this day like i used to really depend on or not depend i guess but like i would definitely read them and i would i would sort of argue with them in my head or i would you know kind of sometimes sway my opinion in buying something or, or even after buying something sway my opinion whether i liked it as much as i thought i did you know well there's no more guesswork involved an interesting, I think, a question is sort of, I, yes, I, the answer is yes, I do still read a lot of it, um, or at the very least, I skim a lot of it. And I think part of it is just the way that people are changing how they read on the Internet. Um, you know, that one of the things that I'm typically looking for uh, in terms of, like, the impact or splash that an album might be making in the music journalism world is not which critics have thoughtfully reviewed it and you know with apologies to critics who still thoughtfully review things um guys like and stereo gum's still pretty good about this i think with like tom bryan and chris deville and those guys but um you know now i'm sort of looking like okay how how broadly is this being covered and, and reviewed how you know how big yeah, is how the many, overall how many like exactly how many times do i see is it, it mm-hmm. just show up in my general like information feed yeah. um and that's uh you know that actually has that that dictates more of sort of what i think about the yeah the overall sort of scope and impact of something than than probably the like 
it, it's almost like more algorithm. It's almost, you know, sort of marrying itself with the algorithmic piece, which is, you know, I mean, Jeremy has, you know, does like discover weekly on Spotify, um, you know, where these things are suggested to him because he listens to X or Y and Z. And it's, it's, it's almost the same thing if you're, you know, looking at, you know, sort of the, in the same places uh, for your rock journalism, for your, you know, right. news, and you see a, a proliferation of information on one thing. You're like, okay, that that will lead me to check it out, and so it's it's almost algorithmic. Look, and the problem is, and the problem uh, that that exists with Spotify's Discover Weekly is is the same problem that you see in rock journalism, which is that it's basically closed circuit. And by that, I mean like you have you know ten bands that are labeled a certain way in Spotify. Well, a human still labeled them at some point, and and when that happened, um, you know it was the ten bands that they liked that they considered to be like post-hardcore, post-shoegaze you know, shoegaze or something. Um, and like that means that every single time you listen to one of them, it generates the other nine bands as recommended listens. And you know, it, it, if the issue is it's difficult to break out of that. In the same way, I think with rock journalism, it's like you know, I see the same bands over and over and over and over and over again. They are the darlings of the press. And, and look, this is not a new phenomenon. Like, shit, it, like Rolling Stone and Cream were reviewing the same people at the same mm-hmm. time um, and skipping over MC5 or skipping over, um, you know, uh, who are some of the other, the great band, the creation or something like that. Um, you know, uh, but, but I think these days it's like there are other places you can look because there is, you know, there is still that sort of the blogosphere. There, you can go to the deli, which is like uh, the the local, you know, um, uh, local press for for New York or San Francisco or whatever your city is, um, and and really, you know, dive into bands that you probably haven't listened to before. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, one of the things that I do use it for today, whereas I used to look at say Pitchfork daily, just the same way I would look at the Red Sox box scores or something. You know, like it was just part of what I did every day. I checked out, and I don't do that today. I, mean, I do check out Pitchfork. I check out Stereo Gum, but it's it's less of sort of like a, I have to check out the news today type of thing that it used to be. But what I do like to do is kind of, you know, look at other things that I'm not necessarily as tuned into. So, you know, I, I enjoy quite a bit the New York Times podcast pod because they're talking about like Kelly Clarkson and Pink, you know, this last episode. And I don't listen to either of them, but I find, you know, that that level of pop stardom really interesting and the fact that these people can sustain it. Or there's certain hip-hop sites where <laughs> I feel like... that they can sustain a conversation about it for 45 minutes? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of insane, you know? And then also, I also just find, like, that it's pretty fascinating that these people have had these careers for this long, and you don't, like, you could go... I mean, we, for instance, could go our whole, uh, you know, week without hearing a Kelly Clarkson song or a Pink song and not caring or not even having it pass so far, radar. So far, so good. You're not going to screw that up for me, are you? You know, <laughs> trillions of... of of uh, albums, but um, the other piece is too is hip hop for me. Like you know, where it was a genre that I've depended on a lot of other people for because I like it, but I'm not you know, it's not my sort of baseline. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think with all the new kind of good cool movements, there's been some sites I want to say I'm going to butcher the name, but is it Pigeons and Planes Christian or Planes yep. and Pigeons? Like I like that site because it like turns me on to stuff I haven't heard before that I probably wouldn't. I'm not going to necessarily find on the the go to. So I think. Just as much as you can kind of get in an echo chamber of, you know, the same sort of sounds that you like, I do use rock journalism today because there's such specific sites on genres that I'm not as sort of familiar with. 
but at the same time, it's it's overwhelming like everything else, right? Like I don't have time in my day to to listen to you know 15 pods and check out you know 30 different sites. So it, I think that's the other piece that gets tough. You should today. quit your job. I should. Yeah. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> No, I, I, I do think, you know, that, that is, you know, that's one of the, you know, sort of cornerstones of, of what this conversation, what led us to this conversation in the first place, which is just the inundation of information that is, just needs to be curated somehow. And there's no cure, you know, there, there's no proper curator. Um, you know, there's, uh, and you, if you do go back to the, like you said, Christian, you know, if you do go back to the same sources over and over again, you wind up with the same information um, and they're, uh, you know, sort of a linear uh, sort of listening um, experience, which is not always the, the best thing in the world, if you want. This is the right. Closed Circuit X podcast, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. Um, anyway. Off on a tangent there with journalism, but it's, uh, you know, I think it does kind of also go back to the indie rock thing where it's, you know, it's almost become sort of independent in its own sense in a lot of ways. Like, you don't rely on Spin or Rolling Stone at all. Well, they're, you know? they're the assholes that raised this question in the first yeah. place, so. Right. Yeah, I mean, all right, so then maybe uh, maybe we can declare the death of uh, good music journalism, like long-form music journalism in particular. And, you know, I, I, look, I think this sort of is more intended to point out how easy it is to declare that things are dead if you, uh, if you need a way out of a conversation. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, fuck them. Let's, let's pronounce the death of this, uh, particular segment. Take a break. Sounds good. Back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, today we are going to end our podcast where we end every podcast, which is, what are you listening to? What are you listening to, Christian? I've got a couple things I want to mention. Um, it's actually been a while since we've done one of these because we've had uh, we've had a few interviews lately. Um, 
uh, which were which were terrific. But um, that's actually given me some time to uh, reload. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Finally, so I, I'm not you know I'm not grasping for something like Jesus. I can't read a book every four days. Um, but uh, but Lincoln and the Bardo, um, which just won the Man Booker, uh, George Saunders book is is really uh, a inc- sort of fascinating read. I mean, it's it is an experimental novel, um, and sort of a. a combination or patchwork of um you know quotes like originally research quotations but then he also of course invents sources um and it the entire thing sort of takes place in this sort of liminal space between um uh, between life and death um where uh willie lincoln um you know is is sort of uh remains for the duration of the novel um you know trapped between uh trapped between the real world and and the afterlife um and waiting for uh, his father Abraham Lincoln to to come grab him that's not a description that necessarily would make you want to jump out and read it i just got it because it won the man booker um mm-hmm. But uh, but I definitely think it's it's worth a shot if you're uh, if you're up for something a little more challenging. I've read a, a couple of George Saunders books before, and I have to say that I, I keep reading uh, reviews of this. Speaking of journalism, and uh, I keep getting more and more frightened to read it. It's cool though. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it's it's really really good. Uh, so I, I would definitely recommend um, taking the uh, taking the chance. Um, and the other thing is uh, is Margot Price's uh, new album, American Made. I actually just saw her um, the night of the release at, uh, at Rough Trade here in in Brooklyn. Um, but uh, but American Made is just a is an outstanding record. Um, and I think you know a, a, a terrific follow up to the debut last year, Midwest Farmer's Daughter. Um, and, you know, really does sort of, I think, build and, and deepen that sound a little bit um, of, of fuller backup and, and uh, one duet with Willie Nelson, which is terrific. So and to sort of combine the, the George Saunders um, and uh, country music thing, definitely check out um, a there was a terrific interview or I guess sort of uh, hour long conversation between um, Jason Isbell and um, George Saunders that was posted by GQ uh, a week or two ago, um, sort of about the creative process. And as two of the best writers out there, I thought, I, I thought it was fascinating. That sounds amazing. I'll check it out. Jerry, what are you listening to? Yeah, so, um, yeah, too, I'm enjoying the Margot Price album. I think it's, it's great. And uh, I'm going to jump over into TV land and uh, jumped into, well, two things. I've been thoroughly enjoying the World Series, by the way. I think Christian and I were... Some of the last people standing so the other night, very late watching, and uh, yeah, it's been fun. And like uh, you know, you forget how fun baseball can be. This has been a great series, and, and also um, two great World Series in a row. Let's yeah, be honest. Exactly, exactly. So, um, and then I've been, uh, you know, I, I jumped into Stranger Things too, which I know gets a ton of buzz and, and lots of you know uh, media attention and journalism attention. I was, like, totally lukewarm on Stranger Things. I, I thought it was fun and, you know, obviously nostalgic for the 80s, things like that. I mean, I just I didn't love it, didn't hate it. I found it entertaining. But I think season two has done a really good job of, of bringing you back in. And, um, you know, it's very sci-fi, obviously, which is not necessarily my go-to. But it, um, I don't know. It's, it, I think they did a really good job, and I highly recommend it. I'm, I'm, I was not uh, super excited. I was going to watch it to check it out, and I'm now excited to keep going. So I'm about well, that's, four episodes That's great to in. hear. Yeah, I, that was sort of one of those shows that I really, really enjoyed it when I watched it and didn't think about it once when I wasn't right. watching mm-hmm. it for the rest of the year. Um, but I'm excited to, to, to get excited about something again. Yeah, it's very yeah, there's much. There's been a lull in TV, in my opinion, so it's a good no, thing to jump into. 
Well, I am going to again, like Christian and and uh, you both, you both, you guys actually, uh, you know, have had a, a bit of time to reload my, um, you know, or, or restock the the well of uh, what are you listening to, Canon? Yeah, exactly. So, um, I with uh, highly, highly recommend uh, the Florida Project, Sean Baker's new film, um, and just Sean Baker is a. Uh, uh, really amazing director whose last uh, last film was Tangerine, which was shot on an iPhone, famously on one block in West Hollywood, um, where there are uh, sort of trans hustlers uh, hung, hung out at a donut shop, and um, it just gives it a lot of insight into a very very um, finite subculture uh, in a place and time subculture. I'm not talking about necessarily um, a subculture in terms of a broader identifiable subculture i'm talking about literally this block it's, it's a of cutaway this. of a time yeah. and a place yeah, yeah it's a very particular moment and they're all very small movies so you know when when and you know much like moonlight which i also you know liked an awful lot which was a, a small movie in its scope um you know these these are places that I don't, I don't frequent um you know this is takes place in a uh, uh basically a motel in orlando um and it is people who are sort of hanging on by a thread. And, and again, you know, uh, he's sort of fascinated with the side hustle. Um, you know, it's a, a mother, a young mother and daughter who, you know, uh, it's, it's a, these, there's no, there's no Spielbergian stuff going on here. There's no, um, there's no angels and there's no devils. There's just people. And, uh, you know, I thought about it, unlike Stranger Things 2, uh, or Jeremy's take on Stranger Things 2, this is a movie I thought about a ton after I saw it, a lot more after I saw it than when I saw it. So uh, I highly recommend it, and I won't, um, you know, I won't try to to sort of uh, describe it too much because I, I think it's its own little thing that, that um, is extraordinarily well done, and bravo, Sean Baker, who also, if you get a chance, see Starlet, his uh, first film, which is also terrific. Um and then I, I just dove into uh, um, Jennifer Egan's Manhattan Beach last night. So I am, you know, uh, probably 60 pages in. And let's just say Jennifer Egan has not lost her ability to write. It's a very, yeah, very different. It's great to hear. Very, very different awesome. uh, from a visit from the Goon Squad. Um, really, really uh, cinematic uh Fictional historical fiction about uh, mid '30s New York City um, and the immigrant population, as far as I've gotten. But you know, let's uh, let's just leave it at that. And I will come back with a with a larger review later. Can I ask one other question? So there's the there's a new Richard Linklater movie coming out. Um, yes. Last Flag Flying. Like, yeah. where the hell did that come from? I saw the review the other, or excuse me, I saw the preview the other day on uh, while I was watching the series, and I was just, I felt like I'd been taken, uh, you know, been blindsided a little bit. I really didn't hear much about it, and the cast looks amazing. Just to bring it full circle, indie director Richard yeah. Linklater. I mean, he really does make his own films outside of the world of. So he's making his movies down in Texas, and so they, you know, it, when they do come out, sometimes it does feel like, wow, I didn't yeah. hear this being yeah, talked about. It doesn't didn't. get behind it. Totally, it's. Um, but just to just to for those who who haven't heard about it, um, it's uh, Amazon Studios. Uh, it's coming out on on November seventeenth, but it's um, three, I guess. 
it's called Last Flag Flying, and it's three sort of Vietnam-era Navy vets, yeah, and it's uh, Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, and Lawrence Fishburne, and they, they reunite, basically, to bury um the child of one of those guys who was uh who was killed in the early days of the iraq invasion so i mean it's a wackiness ensues yeah i mean it's (laughs) sort of like um i mean that's a slightly heavier version of the hangover plot um like i mean it's you know three guys go on like a a funny tour of you know and it's it or i mean there's definitely is comedy based on the preview but it's like um, you know, I think there's also a, a going to be a hell of a lot more drama and intensity. So anyway, yeah. I'm excited about it. Or Star Wars, where three people go on an adventure as well. So um, oh, yeah, and basically all movies that where three people <laughs> go on an adventure are the same in my and mind. One Wookiee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, let's uh, let's add some songs to the the playlist, and, and then we'll uh, bolt and. Um, it's, uh, so the 4,642 top 10 songs of all time. Christian, do you have a, a nominee? I do. Um, I'm going to go with uh, A Little Pain by Margot Price off her new album. Nice. Cool. Nice. Jer? Yeah, I, um, I could pick a, a number of <clears throat> songs or singles from this group, but uh, being as it, we're recording on Halloween, I'm going to go with Welcome to the Terror Dome by Public Enemy. And I am going to go with a indie rock song that isn't an indie rock song because it was on a major label, and that is uh, I See No Evil by Television. Nice. So anyway, uh, good talking to you guys, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, guys. All right. See you later. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.